Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. We're back again with a new story and in a new room, not that any of you can see that. Let's begin. It was long, long ago. Britain did not yet exist. Neither, for that matter, did England, Scotland or Wales. Rome had left these islands centuries before, and now they were fought over by warring tribes of Britons, Angles, Saxons, Jutes, Danes and many, many more. And in that long, long ago, the moor-top hills were windswept and desolate. Moors are almost always this way. It's a rare thing indeed to find a sunny moor with a pleasant disposition, doubly so in a story. But this night it was particularly wind-swept and desolate, and to boot it was bitterly cold, and the darkness was as black as pitch and filled with flakes of snow, wet, icy, deadly. The darkness robbed the two boys of the breathtaking view from the hillside they found themselves on. They stumbled on the uneven mounds of grass, squelched through the mudded earth, tripped occasionally on small rock outcroppings, and generally fumbled their way through the terrible night, shivering violently, teeth chattering as the storm and the snow howled all around them. Conversation had long since become impossible. Not because any words uttered were soon whipped away by the wind and snow, though they were. No but because cold and exhaustion had completely taken over the boys' minds and bodies, and to form words now was a task far beyond them. Grimly, they willed themselves onwards. Onwards. They had to find shelter. As the freezing night cut deep through flesh and into the bones, the very act of thinking itself became at first difficult, and then impossible. Nothing was left in their minds but a knowledge of the cold and the most base need to seek warmth. Wearing heavy cloaks as they were, it takes a surprisingly long time for the severe symptoms of hypothermia to set in, even in the snow-flecked air of a night like that one. But they'd been wandering lost in the sudden icy storm for hours now, which was time enough. The younger lad was first to fall. He had enough energy to muster a cry, and though the sound was faint, his brother turned. He turned with the intention that he could somehow help his sibling. But it wasn't to be, for the older boy too was then overcome, and he toppled, landing on a rock with what would have been a horrible cracking noise had it not been drowned out by the rage of the winds. The younger of the lost brothers used the very last of his effort to raise his head. He couldn't make out the shape of his brother's body, nor see as the blood from that cracked skull seeped onto the rock and earth. But as the last of his life left him, it seemed as though he could feel something. Something that even at that dying moment he registered as strange. A distant rumbling coming from somewhere far under him. And a sound. A shriek. Getting louder. Getting closer. But by the time the source of the noise had revealed itself, the young boy was no longer able to see it or indeed to see anything at all, 
ever again. Two days later, the winter storm had died down enough for the search party to find the two bodies. The passing away of the sons of the local Saxon king, for such had they been, was a tragedy for this quasi-royal family, even at a time in history when life was expected to be brutal and short. King Edgar ordered graves to be constructed at the site the bodies had been found. Simple stone monuments. And life went on. Time passed. King Edgar and his fledgling dynasty were soon swallowed up into the mighty kingdoms of first Northumbria and then Wessex, until what had been his lands were part of England. Time marched on. The prosperity and health of the people of England waxed and waned over the centuries. Countless summers and winters flashed by. Lives began, blossomed, withered and ended. By many twists, turns and quirks of history and always underpinned by a ruthless brutality. The rulers of England and then Britain rose to an unprecedented power and wrought a bloody scar across the face of the world. And the local Saxon King Edgar was long forgotten. But while the flow of global events is a rush of change, history at a local level often looks very different. In a small town or village, changes are gradual and sometimes imperceptible. Each generation treads the same well-worn paths, tends the same fields, marries in the same church, takes a walk up the same hills and repeats the rituals of their forebearers for what seems like eons. And so it was that for centuries those living local to the hill on which the two boys had fallen continued to visit the grave markers erected by that long irrelevant king and they placed and they replaced stones atop of them preserving the graves throughout the passage of time. The piles of stones, or cairns, became known as the two lads, and by the time our story begins they were, at least for the locals of the area, as much a permanent feature of the landscape as the sky and the hills. Exactly when our story takes place is not known, but it's one of the closing years of the 18th century. English pride rides high, even the petty gentry of England are amongst the most powerful people in the world and in their own estimations they rank considerably higher than that. We are in Lancashire, rural Lancashire, at a time when the country was divided up into great estates. But do not be misled by any preconceived notions you may have of that county, for we begin in the lands that surround Rivington Hall, and these lands and that hall are the seat of as much ancestral wealth as most of their southern equivalents. Our story begins one early evening in the late days of summer, August 23rd to be exact, atop the vast moorland that rises to the north of the district of modern-day Bolton, or Bolton-le-Moors, as it was more romantically known at that time. We start at Rivington Pike, a few miles distant from the hall. A pike in this case is another word for a hill, there are lots of them in English, and Rivington Pike is a small, well-defined protrusion on the landscape, topped with a very noticeable tower. Now, local tradition makes it nigh impossible to mention Rivington Pike without proclaiming its long and honourable history as one of the sequences of beacon towers that crisscrossed the country and one which conveyed the famous message telling of the arrival of the Armada in 1588. Such are the stories that weave the fabric of local and national life together into a single cloth. But though it had stood for hundreds of years, that beacon was now gone. In its place stood another tower, 
This one was a hunting lodge, erected by some previous lord of Rivington Manor some 50 or 60 years previous. And as the story opens, a small group of people are rapidly heading towards the place. The group was a hunting party, and though the three who led it were perhaps not the kind to dress all in red or shout tally-ho, they didn't do such things only because they were not yet generally done. They were that type of person. The type who would refer to their party as consisting of three men, the horses, the dogs, and the servants. The men were Pilkington, Lord of Rivington Manor, Norton, a local young man of means, and finally Mortimer, a school friend of Norton, visiting from a far distant county, perhaps one in the south. He was overtaken with the romance of the hills. A successful day of hunting had been had, inasmuch as such things can be judged, and the plan had been to head back to Rivington Hall. But the sudden appearance of vast dark banks of lightning-filled clouds had forced the men to make an alteration to their plans. Well, after some debate. Norton, for his part, was quite caught up in the whole thing. How terrifically sublime to be caught out in the open under the wrath of the tempest. What an experience. Witness the fury of nature and rain on the face as the jagged lightning delivers the message of the gods to the earth. Let us stay, let us stay and dance and revel in it, I say. Upon hearing this, the unnamed servants had eyed the incoming storm nervously and exchanged glances. Their uneasiness was not lessened by Mortimer who played the role of polite guest and agreed that he also loved a good storm. But the more practical Pilkington rolled his eyes and set his two companions right. Well, we're not getting back to the hall before it reaches us. Just over there is the hunting lodge, which is sheltered and dry, and I'm going there right away before I'm caught out in this, lose my way as the mist comes down and risk slipping into some awful muddy bog. If you two wish to remain and prostrate yourselves as sacrifices before some pagan gods, then so be it. But I, gentlemen, should be well away from it. And away he went, followed by the relieved servants, and then, slightly after, Mortimer. Norton considered the wisdom in Pilkington's words, how he had been abandoned, and the rumble of the thunder, and eventually this dampened the longing for adventure in his heart. He gave a melodramatic sigh, turned and followed. And not a moment too soon, for as Norton made his way into the lodge and slammed the heavy door behind him, there came a tremendous crash of thunder that echoed all around the valley and shook the very foundations of the tower. And then the heavens opened and the rain battered down. The light grew darker and darker, both with the clouds and because of the onset of twilight. The elements raged outside the lodge as the mercifully dry party huddled inside. With few other options, the people inside either settled themselves down to wait the storm out or tried to calm the nervous animals. All except Norton, who sat by the door in rapid attention, almost as if in a trance. Mortimer and Pilkington exchanged glances, rolled their eyes. No one yet thought to refer to any of the servants by name, or even indicate how many of them there were. No one referred to the gentlemen by anything but their surnames. 
some time had passed. Though they'd expected a storm with such power to die down quickly, it showed no signs of abating. We might be in it for the night, said Pilkington. Our good fortune that my ancestor had the foresight to build this place so strong and sturdy. Norton said nothing. He remained in a semi-mystical state, revelling in the power of the elements. The dogs had mostly taken to shivering in terror and whining, comforted by the servants. But all of a sudden, one of them gave a definite growl. A bark came from another. And then all of the hounds were suddenly barking and growling. Their ears twitched and their heads turned, all in the same direction, all facing the door. There was no change in the sound, the constant drumming of the rain, but the atmosphere in that little room quickly chilled. A brave few of the dogs jumped up, ran to the bolted door, stuck inquisitive snouts under it, and no sooner had they done so than they withdrew them and ran back into the room, whined in terror, dashed for the far wall, tails between their legs, there to cower. Even Norton was roused by the strange behaviour of the animals, and the men watched the hounds with a distinct sense of unease, paralleled in the servants. "'What's wrong with those cowards?' asked Norton, in a bluster of false courage. And this was the cue for a servant to pipe up with words that would cement his place in the credits of the episode, not just as servant, but speaking servant, or possibly even foreboding servant. Now, to get a full impression of this scene, you have to understand that the person who is about to speak has a voice that is radically different from his supposed betters. As one who aspires to tell stories, it is a personal curse of mine that my attempts to convincingly render a range of accents are sadly destined to be either completely unintelligible or more likely interpreted as unintentional comedy. So, they're not fit for purpose, and I'm not going to debase myself by attempting an outrageous accent here. Just as I have not been accenting our gentlemen with the voices of upper-class northerners, I shall not attempt to deliver the servant's speech in the rustic tones he might have used. And I'm not attempting to do this despite the lengths, incredible, dangerous lengths, that the text from which I'm drawing mangles written English in an attempt to convey this accent, and an attempt in which it only marginally succeeds. So anyway... Let it just be left that the servant had an accent that marked him much apart from the huntsman. I reckon the dogs have seen a boggart, he said. Another voice piped up. It isn't dark enough for them yet. There are many hours yet before creatures like that be creeping around. Aye, mostly. The normal sort, I'll grant you. But there's the one. He's about when he pleases. Fears not the sunlight... The Spectre Horseman. The man kind of trailed off, as if suddenly regretting he'd spoken up. All eyes turned from him, back to the door. Through the din of the rain, could they hear it? Were they just imagining those sounds? The clatter of hooves, the heavy snort of a horse's nostrils. The whole room strained to listen. Don't be daft, said Mortimer, breaking the silence. No one's coming up here, in this weather. It's awful out there. It's not... But his friend Norton cut him off, his eyes gleaming with a strange excitement. It's an adventure, isn't it? Like in the old tales. What if this horse has come for me? 
my mount to take, and from the back of it I could be a Sir Lancelot, a giant killer, battling dragons and evil magicians, and of course, rescuing damsels. Yes, in an inexplicable turn of events, Norton was suddenly taken ill with a flare-up of Don Quixote syndrome. His companions reacted with understandable concern. Now calm yourself, Norton, demanded Pilkington. There's nothing there. It's not fitting of an Englishman to act this way, so pull yourself together and... Three loud and crystal clear raps on the door caused Pilkington to fall silent. The wind and rain had stopped very suddenly. In fact, just in the instant before the sound echoed around the room, the noise could be heard unmistakably by every ear of man or beast or servant. Pilkington's face went ashen as profound dread crept over everyone huddled in that little space. And again there came a knock, a single, loud, unmistakable knock. The dogs cowered, and the men shrunk backwards away from the source of the sound. All but Norton, for Norton started forward, pulled back the bolts, and swung the door open. Outside in the dying light was a huge hulking figure. It was, perhaps no surprise, a mounted man, a silhouette backlit by a mass of red angry clouds on the edge of which hung the bright disk of the moon. The figure's face was obscured by a black hat pulled low, and he was clad in dark robes. His steed was as dark as he, and together they filled the large doorway. There was a long pause where horse and rider stood motionless, and those inside the tower stared at the terrifying apparition in shocked silence. The moment was broken by Norton. You! I! No! Uncle! T Twelve years! H how did you? And he stepped through the doorway towards the rider, and with the wake of his passage, the door slammed shut. There was a moment when no one dared move, and then, all at once, people jumped into action, rushed to the portal and pulled the door open, and looking down the hill they could see the horse galloping away, with two figures now upon its back. The light was almost gone, and watching aghast they could just make out the pair heading towards the dark ravine that lay below before they could make them out no more. The Spectre Horseman, came the voice of the foreboding servant. Masters, he said, doffing his cap with stereotypical deference. You'd best not follow. Why ever not? asked Pilkington, quite dazed by the events. Mortimer just looked horrified. The foreboding servant looked out into the darkness. Come back in, sirs, and I'll tell you. And in that moment... He was foreboding servant no longer. Not only did this situation mean that his superior knowledge of these supernatural matters temporarily upset the rigid social hierarchy, forcing the masters to listen to him, but he got a name. And so Martin began his story. And yes, I know I've lent heavily on this one, but in the book this is taken from, the guy isn't even introduced. He's a servant, one paragraph, and then as he keeps speaking, at one point, it suddenly says said Martin, 
and you have to do a bit of a double take to realise that Martin is the same guy who was a servant just before, but who has now received a literary level up due to his importance in the narrative. Also, while we're having an aside, I should warn you that we're about to get narratively buried. A story in a story in a story. It's not got quite the same level of narrative inception as, say, the worst bits of the Arabian Nights, where you can get a tottering four stories deep, but it does get multi-leveled. And by the way, if you're still wondering about some Saxon princes, well, well done for remembering that. You probably didn't need this warning. Martin began. Well, do you know, it must be 12 years ago, to this very night. Though for some reason, I'd not thought about it till now. Despite how clearly relevant it would be to all the events that have transpired so far. Probably because my lowly social position didn't allow me the freedom to volunteer information that might be pertinent without being first directly addressed. He didn't add. Well, 12 years ago to this day, St. Bartholomew's Eve, my father was out at night doing his usual hunting around for birds in the moonlight. It's a good trade that made him much money on the side. He'd go to Manchester, sell them there. Anyway, he took out with our two rough dogs with great names. Crab and Pincher they were. Oh, what lovely beasts. I played with them myself when I was small, but they came to a sad end. But you know, in their lives, they lived a really... The rambling encouraged the shaken Pilkington to take back a little of his authority. Yes, yes, but the relevant story, my good man? Yes, of course, said Martin. Well, as I was saying, my dad was out hunting for birds at night, and I was waiting up with but one candle. The rest of the household had already retired, and he hears a scratching and a whining at the door. The dogs. Father was back. But so early, for normally he'd be out the best part of the night. But yes, when I went to the door, it was them. Crab and Pincher, but in a right state they were, all bedraggled, let they been run ragged through mud and hedgerow for hours, and they collapsed to the floor, utterly spent, which was not like them, I tell you. At this, Pilkington shot a warning glance. Well, anyway, I was confused, of course. Where was my dad? I gazed out of the door of our little cottage. It was a nice clear night, not like this one. I remember looking through that doorway many times that night. Around our cottage was the babbling brook, the chirping of the crickets could be heard. I called out a couple of times, but there was nothing. It was wrong. The dogs without their master. I began to develop worries. You know those bog traps, sir? They suck you in. I could scarce believe my father, with all his know-how, would get trapped in such. But was there any other explanation? In my heart I wanted to go after him, but I knew not which way he had gone and I'd be as good as useless out there by myself. So back I went indoors, and I tell you, I was in such a state, pacing up and down for a couple of hours. It was awful, and I wouldn't be steeped in such a pickle again for all the moorgates between here and Chorley. Oh, do get on with it. We've no time to be stuck in the story like your father might be in a bog, interjected Pilkington, very rudely, with what was a truly awful lack of tact, given he had no idea how the story would end. Martin glared. Well, if you don't want to hear it, sir. No, no, said Pilkington, struggling to deal with the shift in the power dynamic. Please, do continue. I reckon I shall, but my nerves are fried. 
I tell you I could do with a little nip from your flask, else I worry they may fail me entirely. Wordlessly, Pilkington handed it over. Martin took a deep slug, wiped his mouth on his sleeve, and continued. Well, I didn't wake my mother, wanted to put it off as long as I could, didn't want to do it at all, but after many hours I reckoned I had to. And I swear I was just about to set foot on the stairway to do just that when I heard footsteps on the garden path, hurried steps, and then my father burst through the door, and I ain't ever seen a man looking more afeard than he did, pale and shaking and terrified half out of his wits, as though the legions of hell were on his tail. And that weren't so far from the truth. He slumped down in his chair without saying a thing, and up jumped Crab and Pincher, and they're so glad to see him, and the dogs, they kind of snapped him out of it, and he starts chiding them for leaving him, but in an affectionate way like. After a few minutes he turns to me, and fixes me with his eyes so dismal and disturbed I'll never forget it I won't. I can see him battling about whether to say anything, to protect me I reckon, but the need to tell is too great, and he blurts it out. I've seen him. I've seen him. Old Sooty Paws himself. And he was all wringing his hands. I didn't want to ask. Didn't want to know. But he needed to tell someone. He had to. And after a few moments, he began his story. Yep, I'm telling you a story about a group of people who are being told a story. And the person who's telling them that story is telling them about the time they were told a story. Just to keep you abreast of that. Son, began my dad. I was just going up by the pike when I saw it there. It was just a shadow at first. A great hulking shadow. I didn't think it was real, a trick of the light. But I kept staring at it, and it was still there. And then all of a sudden, I sees what it was. A figure on the back of a vast horse. I was taken aback to find someone crossing the moors at that time of night, and I was mighty worried he was a robber of sorts. But you know I'm a civil man, so I called out to him, asked him if he was alright, if he needed a guide perhaps. Given he was so still, I thought maybe he was lost, looking for the way. And at this, the figure gave a great deep laugh, a truly horrible sound that made me feel fear to the very core of my being. I was going to run, but I thought, if I did, he'll come after me. Eventually, that awful guttural noise died away and the figure asks me. He says, Well, could you show me the road to the two lads? I can, replied I, though it be difficult going for a horse. Don't you worry about that, my good man. My steed can tread a bog without wetting his hooves. As you can imagine, these words did little to reassure me. And those two dogs there, normally so bold, well, they did nothing to protect me. Tails behind them, heads slunk all low. On we went in silence, and I was glad of that, taking the path up to those two piles of stone. Going to visit graves at night could surely be no good thing. But we got there all right, and there they were, dimly lit by the moonlight. There you go, I said, and if you please, Your Honour, I'll bid you good night. No, came that terrible voice. I may want you yet.
I wanted more than anything to get away, to run. But I had to stay. I knew it. It wasn't my choice to make. Now, said my unwelcome companion, you see those stones that make the kern? Lift them up. I looked at the huge piles of rocks and back at the man. It couldn't be done. And despite myself, I remember blurting out, You must be joking. Oh no. Tis as simple as flying. And with that he was off his horse, and with a single stroke from his switch, the rocks were sent flying high into the air. What a show-off he was. It was then that the dogs ran for it. But I, I had to stay. I envied and cursed them, but they could have done nothing for me. Now the stones were gone. What was beneath them was revealed. And I'll never look at those stones again, for there was nothing beneath them. Nothing, a great dark pit of it, and a smell of rotting eggs and of fire. And then out of this pit of nothingness emerged a vast arm with a taloned hand at its end. Impossible, huge, hairy, black, utterly horrifying. And in that outstretched hand there was something, I know not what. The horseman beside me urged me. Take it. Take what he offers. Do not hesitate. Do as I say. But I couldn't. I wouldn't. I stood stock still. And then, then the shrieks and the howls began, floating up from that pit. (coughs) Unearthly cries, and I felt as though I should go mad. But I didn't move. Take it. Take it, or I shall miss my time. And the demon, for that's what he was, moved towards me, all full of rage. He meant to force me. But all of a sudden, he stopped. For there was another sound, coming not from the pit, but from the moor. The sound of footsteps on the wet heather. And I was saved. For at that sound, the rider, with a voice full of malignant glee, said, You may go now. One comes who is more worthy than thee. And at that, he gave me a kick. A kick that flung me far into the air, and I'm sure that I would not be sitting before you now had I not remembered an old witch charm I was taught as a child. I mumbled it as I fell, and I landed far more softly than I otherwise would have. And then I fell asleep. I awoke what must have been but a little while later. The moon shone down upon me still, and then I made my way back home. Now said Martin, having finished relating his father's story. A few days after this awful affair, we heard tell of a gentleman from Rivington who had been crossing the hills one night and had disappeared. It was of course imagined that he got trapped in a bog, though no body was ever found. But my father thought, my father knew, differently. He always said the man who got caught up in the whole business he himself had escaped but by a whisker. And believe me, sirs, he was a changed man from that day forth, always reading his Bible, every Sunday in church, never heading up onto the moors after dark for the rest of his life. And that's the whole of it, said Martin, finishing off both the story and the contents of Pilkington's flask. Since Pilkington's last interruption, the whole party had been held in rapt, almost breathless attention. There was silence for a while, 
until finally Pilkington spoke up. Well, a good story, but exaggerated and full of improbabilities. As the looks of disbelief began, he clarified, but more believable for the events that we've seen this evening. Having said that, perhaps the impression of what's happened here now is just a bit too strong, and it's affecting us, making us more suggestible. Yes, said Mortimer, why don't we get back to the hall, and perhaps then things will look a bit more ordinary and common sense, you know, when we're back in our own place. And you know, Norton will probably return there by now. Not a man there believed it, but with the storm died down and the tower no longer feeling like a safe place, the party ventured out into the moonlight. Progress was slow, and careful nervous glances were cast at every clump of grass on unusual stone. Many a man fancied grotesque figures looming out of the darkness, then on closer investigation revealed themselves to be perfectly innocent. Of course, when they reached the safety of the manor house, there was no Norton there to be found. Pilkington and Mortimer debated for a while, out of earshot of the help. Though I've mocked the gentlemen in this story, one thing their privilege gave them was a tremendous sense of what is sometimes called pluck, no doubt stemming from that feeling of invincibility with which the upper classes are raised from an early age. And the men agreed that they had to at least try to see if anything could be done. They could go to the two lads, just on the off chance that Norton could be there. Not that he would, of course, but just in case. And so they refreshed themselves as much as they were able, given the circumstances. And out once more they went, into the night of St. Bartholomew's Eve. St. Bartholomew, him of the knife and the pile of his own flayed skin that he carries around with him. Because Christianity, I guess? The servants were left behind. Partly because the gents doubted the men could be convinced to go with them. Partly to not appear to be granting credence to a tale that could still turn out to be a whimsical poor man's fantasy. Surely there was a rational explanation for all of this. They left the horses behind them, for the way the two stone cairns was steep and treacherous, and they ventured out on foot themselves. The harvest moon shone bright, but they had to ascend with the greatest caution, climbing over walls, avoiding the quagmires. They made their way in silence, and eventually they reached the top of the hill. Now those two piles of stone were visible on the horizon. The night remained still, and to the eye nothing was amiss. But an atmosphere of such appalling foreboding descended across the landscape and the hearts of the two men sunk low into their chests. Had they been made of anything less than the sternest of stuff, they would have screamed and run in madness and terror. These were no weak-willed Lovecraftian protagonists. They summoned their resolve, and with heroic determination, they persevered onwards towards the Cairns. As they walked, a mist came down around them, obscuring their view of their goal. Such a thing did not require a supernatural explanation, but the swirling vapours did nothing to calm the men. What was that? I thought I heard something. A voice. Go back, the words on the wind whispered. 
but they ignored them, continued forward as fast as they dared given the darkness, the mist and the potential dangers of the ground. The wind stepped up a notch now, and they fancied it brought snatches of sound to them. Moans, screams, cackles, yells and howling that seemed to grow ever louder. Then they felt a beating of the air around them like great leathery wings, and the two men grasped each other. Their courage finally deserted them as there came a tremendous shriek, so close by it was almost upon them. They sunk to their knees, overwhelmed by terror, and from the lips of Pilkington came a cry, Oh, save us, merciful father! And at that, the mists parted, the cloud rolled back, and the moonlight could be seen once again. It illuminated the dark forms of the two lads, but there was nothing supernatural thereabout. And then there came a weak moan. The men jumped at the sound, but as it came again they realised the source was a mundane one, though horrifying. For there lay the prone form of Norton, and as they dashed to him, his moaning ceased. The man looked positively corpse-like, hands clenched together, his whole body strained as if from some awful event. Pilkington leant in. Norton's breath was faint, but it was there. And ambulances being in short supply, they decided the only sensible course of action was to move the body themselves. This they did, though the task was no simple one, and the first shafts of daylight were on the horizon when they reached the hall. Several weeks passed, during which time Norton occasionally ate, mostly slept, and sometimes woke to rant and rave and scream and then fall silent, staring into the middle distance, insensible of any attempt to rouse him. Pilkington and Mortimer attended to him round the clock. Well, of course, servants did the actual tending, but Pilkington and Mortimer made sure that the servants attended, and they stood at his bedside sometimes, watching pensively. It wasn't like they had jobs they had to go to or anything, so it could have been that this was just the best gig in town, rather than some deep expression of loyalty, though it probably was that as well. Between themselves, they talked a little of the night they had found him, glad that they had appealed to the Lord and thankful for his intervention. Though they did not reflect on how, if it was the Lord who helped when he was asked, how this reflected on an omniscient, omnipotent being. He waits to be called, despite seeing the peril? Like a lifeguard watching someone drowning, but refusing to help until they say, please, pretty please, with a cherry on top. No, they did not concern themselves with such things, and so their faith was not shaken. After some weeks, a little life began to return to the stricken Norton, and when he was finally well enough to hold a conversation, well, would you know it, he had a story to tell because this story is all about stories within stories, with very little action happening in the actual main narrative. I know I was foolish, excitable, he began. What a mood I was in that day. But you must know how surprised I was when I recognised that rider, and that is surely some of the reason I was so compelled to follow. For he, that horseman, wore the image of my uncle. Now I've not told you this previous, Twelve years before we found ourselves in that lodge, the eve of St. Bartholomew, well, 
my uncle unaccountably disappeared while crossing the moors. Mortimer and Pilkington exchanged glances. It was as they had suspected. Despite much searching, we never saw him again. And so, for him to appear like that, well, I was overcome. And it wasn't just that. It was like I was in a dream, enthralled in some kind of dark spell. I felt I had to know what had happened to him. I had to go with him. And so I did. That horse went with such great speed and a sure-footedness that was impossible, taking the steepest, most treacherous paths without a care. And yet so inexplicably convinced was I that this was my dear departed uncle that I thought only of the kindly man that he was, and I felt then no fear. But as we climbed the hill and it became more obvious that the stones were our destination, a worry began to form. The two pillars loomed on the dark horizon, like giants of old, waiting to gnash on the bones of their victims. Wordlessly, I was let down from the horse as we got close, and as I slipped to the floor, the horse and rider trotted on a bit. It was my uncle. I recognised his very ordinary clothes, his build. And yet, when he turned, I felt then there was something wrong, very wrong, in this whole situation. I was trapped by some terrible doom. Horrible ideas filled my imagination, and I felt there could be no escape. You know me, asked the horseman with my uncle's voice, and though I surely knew by now, I replied, Yes, you are my friend, my guardian. Why have you brought me here? Where have you been? Oh, my path is hidden, he cried. Uncle, I asked, is it really you? Is it you and not some horrible thing that wears your form? Yes, of course, it's really me. I remember when my brother's wife first laid you in my arms. I remember the times I watched over you, the times we played together. And he approached, stretched out a hand and grasped mine, and shook it. His hand was warm and solid and real. And then I felt some reassurance. Now you see it is me. I shall return at midnight. Wait here, stay here. Do you promise? I went to embrace him, but that great beast of a horse was snorting, and he turned to it. It looked to all the world as though it was the horse ordering him to depart. It, and not the man, was the master. And I waited. I know that seems odd, but I was determined to see this through, to get my uncle back. Oh, but how I wish I hadn't. The listeners to the tale were silent, horrifically enraptured, even though having heard Martin's story, they should have had a good idea of what was coming next. But these things are different when told by a gentleman, I suppose. So, I leant against the stone, and I waited. And it was not long before I was again in the presence of the horseman. The rider dismounted with a movement far too easy. And as he approached, his hat tipped back, and lit by the moon, I fully saw his face for the first time. A visage that was hideously distorted, demonical in its expression. I tried to back away, but in an instant he was upon me, hand upon my shoulder. You are mine, he triumphantly declared. Now you shall know my secret. He leaned nearer, his hot breath about my face. 
His eyes were fiery pits, and the smell as he leaned in was abominable. Leaned in, so that those detestable lips, lips that barely covered fangs, those lips met mine. And it seemed as though the spirit of that thing was diffusing into my body, that I was destined to be the vessel for a diabolical fiend. It was taking possession of me. I could not pull myself away. But though I was almost suffocating, I found I had just enough energy to give one cry, and I cried out for heaven to save me. And after that, I have no memories. None until what I understand to be many days later, when I became aware of my presence here. What a tale, said Pilkington, understatedly. And to his dying day, Norton remained firmly convinced that his uncle's body had been the abode of a foul spirit who had sought to take over his own body also, as it was obliged to do every twelfth year upon the feast of St. Bartholomew. He believed that he had only been saved by his last-minute appeal to the divinity. Like his fellows, he did not question the implications this had for one or all of the omnipotence, omniscience or general giving a shitness of the Lord God. The body of his uncle was never recovered, so he had no proof. All of it could have been hysterics and exaggeration. And no more sightings of the spectral horseman were ever recorded. But Norton took this as a good sign, believing that perhaps having been frustrated in an attempt to find another soul, that foul creature had not kept up the terms of its agreement. And like one who did not keep up mortgage repayments, its home had been taken away from it. And unlike one who does not keep up mortgage repayments, it was now condemned forever to hell. I was going for a repossession gag there, but I couldn't quite make it work. Anyway, none of the men who had been out that day were to spend much more time on the moors. Mortimer returned home, and was not seen in that county ever again, while Norton and Pilkington, tied to the land by their property, would take extraordinary lengths to avoid the moor routes, and when twilight fell, there was no power on earth that would compel them up there. The cairns of the two lads still remain today, as does the hunting lodge at Rivington Pike. Both offer wonderful views of the landscape, and are well worth a visit. Before dark, especially on St. Bartholomew's Eve. And there you have it, a spooky ghost story. Well, it wasn't really that spooky, was it? It's kind of in your face about it. And it's more a demon kind of story than a ghost story. Definitely a story, though. Let's start the discussion bit with a little confession. This is not really a genuine local legend. I reckon that those of you keeping track of the various narrative voices and the overall tone of the piece might have figured that out already. What do I mean by genuine? Well, it's a word laden with all kinds of problems, but what I mean here is that it's not a story passed down over the ages. It's more a story presented as a folk legend, but actually a short story pretty much entirely invented in the early 19th century. As you'll be aware if you've listened to previous episodes, 19th century folklore collectors are the most frequently gened character class for the after-story discussion part of this podcast and the author of this tale definitely counts amongst their number. And that's how I've justified including this story 
despite its pretty much exclusively literary origin, having spilled forth from his pen. His name was John Roby, and his Wikipedia page refers to him as a banker, poet, and writer, in that order. A local to Lancashire, he collected legends of the county where he lived with quite some zeal, and published his large volumes of Traditions of Lancashire in 1829. The Traditions of Lancashire is a huge work, featuring lots of different stories and folklore from all around the county. So he definitely had a deep knowledge of local legends. But combined with this, he also had more than a tendency, let's call it a predilection, to take small snippets of story and expand on them to such a great degree that they are pretty much unrecognisable from any original source. Catherine Briggs, that doyen of 20th century British folklore research, describes Roby as apt to bury a small grain of true tradition under a pile of verbiage. So, there may have once been something to this spectral horseman, but what you've just heard ain't it. However, I'm telling you this so you understand the origins of the story, not in any way to cast aspersions on Mr Roby or the tale. For Roby was an accomplished poet and author and folklore collector. His literary style is indeed verbose and grandiloquent, never using a single word where 17 will do, and he habitually uses the narrative voice to go on a meandering wander about whatever takes his fancy. Strange asides during a story? What a terrible idea, you might be thinking. And I, for one, certainly can't imagine anyone telling a tale like that. Nope, that's definitely not going to catch on. Anyway, so yes, a meandering sort and I've actually considerably compressed this story down to tell it here in a podcast-appropriate time frame. To give you a quick illustration of the kind of thing I'm talking about, the extract I'm about to read is Roby's narrative voice, referring to itself using the majestic plural, or royal we, and here he's talking about the fact that the party have been out hunting, something I covered in about five words. Having first said that basically the hunt went well, Roby expands on this. But alas, we are not sportsmen ourselves, and bitterly do we lament that we are unable to describe the desperate conflict and the mighty issues of that memorable day. The hopes, fear and fire escapes of the whole party, the consumption of powder and the waste of flint or the comparative merits of Moll and Rover. We shall not attempt to set forth in our veritable prose, lest we draw down the wrath of some disappointed fowler upon us, for meddling with matters about which we are so lamentably ignorant, and, we are afraid to say, in some measure, willfully deficient. And so on and so forth, for about another page. It's amazing how we can really pad out a story that's pretty much about one wet afternoon and evening. Now, Another reason not to dismiss Roby is that many of the tales of Lancashire he collected, and often extensively rewrote, have since his writings become famous, partly due to their associations with the very particular and also very real locations in which they are set. Roby helped create traditions of some Lancashire places, even where there weren't any originally. Tying the story so close to the genuine landscape certainly helped here. For example, All the locations in the Spectre Horseman are real places, and they exist today. You can visit the tower on the top of Rivington Pike, which was formerly a beacon tower. Rivington Hall is a private house. The two lads' cairns are very much a feature of the landscape that date back to prehistoric times, 
and they can be found on the side of Winter Hill. That whole area is a very pleasant walking area today. As I suggested at the end of the story, if you're in the vicinity and enjoy walking, then I'd further recommend you go check it out and try to avoid demonic possession. And it's not only the places that are real. The Pilkington family really did own the manor, so while the Pilkington who features in the story may be fictional, the family is not. This kind of little detail enhances the already strong connections to place that have helped Roby's stories stick around. A quick side note on the legend of the two lads. There's a couple of tales connected to these. One is the frozen Saxon prince variant I included, which isn't actually in Roby's story. Another, which is pretty much the same, has the lads freezing to death except saying they were farm lads in this case. Roby himself dismisses both explanations and plumps for what he deems a more historical one. He says that the Cairns were once altars to the god Baal, upon which fires burned in pre-Roman times. This was actually a popular theory at the time, that worship of the god Baal was common in Britain and partially gave rise to Jewism, and the name Baal was believed to be connected to the Beltane festival, and that was itself seen as evidence of long-established worship. Sadly, despite the appeal of this fire-worshipping cult, these days it's a pretty much discredited theory. Roby, for his part, is certainly drawing on the idea to give the area a dark, pagan feel, to make the cairns spookier, and to tie pagan rites to the hellmouth from which the screams and that demonic arm emerge. As I mentioned before, the two cairns are believed to be prehistoric in origin, making them even older than Roby had imagined, though the stones that are there these days have of course accumulated over the centuries like a grand ship of Theseus. The Cairns sit on the evocatively named Crooked Edge Hill, itself part of Winter Hill. And now we're wandering all over that area, let's take a quick look at Winter Hill itself. Even though it wasn't named as such in the story, much of the action takes place there, and the hill itself very much dominates the landscape of the area, even more so today than in Roby's time, as, already a prominent hill, it is now topped with the appropriately named Winter Hill TV mast which broadcasts television and radio signals across the north of England, and which is very visible for many miles around. The hill itself is famous for all kinds of supernatural and mysterious affairs, aircraft crashes, the body of a murder victim being found there, and, most remarkably of all, sightings of UFOs going back to the 50s, but with a sighting as late as 1999. I think it is satisfying to assume that these are all somehow related to the spectre horseman and the hellmouth that exists on that hill. Basically, the whole area is absolutely teeming with history and folklore, and I make no apologies if in a later episode I would turn to the heavily embellished legends of John Roby, as there are simply quite a lot of them, and they're good fun. Though when we return to Lancashire, I might find some other unsuspecting Victorian antiquarian to accost as a source. Okay, so we've had our ramble around the origins of the story and the area in which it was set. I suppose, traditionally, I should now also take a stab at giving my impressions of the story. Well, for starters, as I may have mentioned, you know, once or twice. It's odd, in that mostly it involves storytelling, with very little action happening on screen, as it were. And kind of repetitive storytelling at that. A few people visit the stones, spooky stuff happens, it's kind of similar. Yes, there's danger, and there's the ghost, Apart from the poor uncle, no one actually seems to suffer a lot. The horseman is 
pretty easy to defeat as soon as you get God's attention, and the uncle was presumably a fairly impious, or just absent-minded kind of fellow, to have not appealed to the Lord, and thus avoided the whole sorry mess in the first place. Oh, also, that kiss. With that line about learning my secret, followed by that lip-smacking, well, when I first read those words, I kind of wondered if we were about to launch into an out-and-out piece of slash fiction, or a Chuck Dingle novel, and was mildly disappointed to find out that that wasn't the case. Another thing I kind of enjoyed is what is hinted at but never actually fully explained. The tie to St Bartholomew's Night. The twelve-yearly cycle. The horse. It seems like there's something going on that's never quite made explicit. Like there's this whole complicated, diabolical bureaucracy working in the background, and we never quite get to understand it all. I often feel like I have to justify the tales I tell here. And for this one, I'm coming down on the side of, even though nothing much occurs, it's an unusual little story from an interesting part of the country, and I enjoyed it. And I hope you did too. Next episode we'll be heading down to Cornwall for a truly enchanting tale. I hope you can join us then. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.